me to be here uh, with you today. Let me go ahead and pray for our time before we dive into the text. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your love for us. Thank you for your word, your scripture, which is truth. I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit that I would speak truthfully here today and that our hearts would be open to receive the word of truth which you give us and that we would be motivated to live as you've called us in light of that truth. We thank you and we praise you and we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Never in human history have Christians consumed more books and sermons, yet few are finding fulfillment in their walk with God. This is not from a lack of consumption, but a lack of exercise. It is through risky obedience that we experience the glory of God. When we stop living by faith, we will stop experiencing him and begin to doubt him. My hope is to stir you to action so that you experience the life that is truly life. These are the words of Francis Chan, a preacher and former pastor of a namesake church, Cornerstone Community Church in Simi Valley, California. One individual working with Francis Chan left my former church in Cushy Menlo Park, California, and moved to inner city San Francisco to start a church. He's working as a missionary where he lives in the midst of unbelievers in a part of the city that has the highest murder rate of the entire city. He's starting missional businesses so he doesn't have to need support. And along the way, he's starting house churches, discipling others, providing food, love, and health services to the community. This type of living exemplifies a couple of important lessons that we're going to talk about um, from our text today. Please turn in your Bibles to our text, which is Romans chapter 13, verses 8 through 14. I'm going to cover two main points in these verses, and I'm also going to show a theme that is running through the verses as well. So the first point, which is in your outline on the blue page, is that we should live Christianly in community. Live Christianly in community. The second point is that you wear your faith. You wear what you believe. So dress well. As I discuss each of these points, I'll return to a theme, which is that our attitudes and our actions testify to God's grace. To put our passage in context, verses 8 through 14 mark a transition from Paul's earlier instructions regarding giving to authorities their due. Last week, we learned that we were to submit to the governing authorities who have been instituted by God. Paul concludes that section in verse 7 with the instruction to give everyone what we owe them, including when they are due taxes, honor, and respect. Paul continues the metaphor of giving in verse 8. However, verse 8 marks a transition in that the group to whom we are to give something to is not the governing authorities, but the community around us. So the message shifts from instructions on how the believer is to understand and model correct behavior in citizen-type relationships, more of a 
vertical type relationship uh, with governing authorities to communal relationships or a horizontal relationship, both with believers and unbelievers. So Paul begins this section in verse 8 by contrasting debts of money with debts of love. Uh, and I'm going to take a, go on a short tangent here, um, mainly because this is a very p- short part of the section, but we're instructed not to hold monetary debts to one another. Now, you've got two different types of um, translations of this particular part of verse 8 when he's talking about monetary obligations. The more literal translations, such as the NASB, translates, translate this as something like, owe no one anything. While the more sense-based translations, like the NAV, for instance, translate it otherwise, the NIV says, let no debt remain outstanding, and the message says, don't run up debts. So I generally prefer the more literal translations. That's what I do my, my study out of. The NASB, for instance, I think the sense translations here are a little bit more accurate for a couple of reasons when we're talking about monetary obligations. First, Jesus instructs that we should lend to those who are in need. In Matthew 5.42, he says, Give to the one who asks of you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. So there's not a categorical prohibition on borrowing and lending in the New Testament. And second, Paul's primary point is not about monetary debts, but about our debts of love. Rather, Paul uses this as a rhetorical device, and he shifts gears from our debts to the governing authorities to our debts to our brothers and sisters, again, being both inside and outside the body. And the rhetorical device embodies the general principle that we should not maintain outstanding obligations to others when they expect to be repaid more quickly. Give back without having to be asked to give back. Now, on the other hand, we are to have an outstanding obligation, an outstanding debt of love to all people. This is a debt that is continually ongoing. We are always to love others. And notice, in that verse, Paul doesn't put any conditions on how our love is supposed to be for other people. This is unconditional love, much like God's love for us. And so we see how this exemplifies the theme which I mentioned earlier, and that is when we model unconditional love to others, we're really testifying to the unconditional love that God has for us. Now think about that for a second. What does that mean in your lives? When someone wrongs you, you still owe them a debt of love. When the mechanic that you take your car to fixes one thing on your car but breaks another, you still owe them a debt of love. If someone talks bad about you at work, you still owe him or her a debt of love. And I think of the example of a woman whose two sons were killed by ISIS, and she said that I would invite them in if her killers came to my door, I would invite them in and share the gospel with them and tell them that I forgive them. Even in that extreme situation, you still owe a debt of love. So by continually fulfilling this obligation, we model God's love to the world. In fact, we are God's love to the world. 
So this is an important point that runs throughout these last seven verses of chapter 13, that the way we love others and how we conduct ourselves publicly model God's love and Christ's actions to the world. So remain indebted to one another, always fulfilling your obligation to love others. Paul says that loving others, quote-unquote, fulfills the law. Paul expresses the same sentiment in Galatians 5, which we read earlier in our service. And there he says the entire law, the entire law, can be summed up by keeping this one command, to love our neighbors as ourselves. Notice Paul doesn't take us out from under the law, but he tells us how to fulfill the law in this regard. Our passage here in Romans reveals that this charge addresses both internal and external aspects of our conduct. And all of these are based on a single principle, that we are to love our neighbor as ourselves, that we are to take their best interests into account. We're to do no harm to our neighbor. So, for instance, if we look at the text, we learn that we avoid harming them by not committing adultery, not murdering, and not stealing. These are all outward actions that we must avoid. But in terms of the internal aspect, we are to avoid coveting their goods as well. So you might ask, how does coveting their goods relate to doing our neighbor no harm or loving them? And I think there are at least two aspects or two dimensions that we must consider. First, when we choose not to covet, we're less likely to fall into the sins that we just discussed. We forego stealing something or keeping something that we borrowed for longer than we should. But second, and perhaps more importantly, is that when we get rid of that internal covetousness, our heart is free to consider the needs of others, enabling us to serve others selflessly. Paul underscores this latter point in Galatians 5, verse 13, where he ties our love to one another to our humble service for one another. So, how are we to love our neighbor as ourself? Well, do we know someone inside the body or out who is ailing? We can bring them food, bring them groceries, or sit by their bedside. Do you know someone inside the body or out who is struggling to make ends meet? You can give them an anonymous gift or give them some item that you have that you know that they need. Do you know someone inside the body or out who's struggling in a relationship or emotionally? We can be a listening ear. We can get coffee or a meal together. The point is, we can act to be more engaged in one another's lives. And indeed, if we're going to fulfill the command here, we ought to be acting in that regard. Do we know the needs of the local community outside the church? Does the local retirement home need volunteers, or do they need more big brothers and sisters? The point here is that love is a contact sport. Don't take that too literally, by the way. (laughs) The concept of love is predicated on relationships. Our triune Godhead is relational, existing in three persons, in relationship, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit that proceeds from the Father. And similarly, we are called to be in relationships 
to live Christianly in community. There's a story of a young man whose family was regular attenders at church. But, when, but this young man moved out, and he returned to church only on Christmas and Easter. The pastor who knew the family and had known them since he was a young boy saw this young, young man at Easter one day, and he went up to him after the service, and he said, young man, why do you only come on Christmas and Easter? You need to come more regularly. You need to join the Lord's army. And the young man looked about, his eyes darting furtively, and he said, I'm in the secret service. (laughs) Do we live to some extent as if we are in God's secret service? We shouldn't. We've been called to be in the lives of others. Through Paul's message here, Incidentally, Paul is repeating what Jesus called the second greatest commandment in the parable of the Good Samaritan, which we read earlier. We cannot practice the type of love that both Jesus and Paul exhort unless we are in community with other people. We cannot fulfill the law by loving others when we practice mountaintop Christianity. We cannot practice Christianity only among other believers, only when convenient, or only when we remember. We have to be actively thinking about how to love other people. So I recommend, as part of your spiritual discipline, that you get in the habit of thinking about how to love others. How do I love that person at my work? How do I love that person in my Bible study? How do I love my family well? How do I love this person well through a difficult time? Now, we do all this because of what Paul explains in the second part of our uh, passage for today, verses 11 through 14. Paul urges us to fulfill the law by loving one another because the day of our salvation is nearer. The day of our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. Paul uses several metaphors in this section to explain his exhortation. And that exhortation is this, to behave as people who do not sin like we will do in the future age, in the present age. To behave as if we're without sin as we will be in the future age, in the present age. Now, the three metaphors are this, and I'm going to go through each of them in turn. Sleeping, day versus night, and putting on clothes. So the first metaphor is one of slumbering or sleeping. Now, as Paul has earlier in this passage, he hearkens back to another teaching of Jesus. In Mark 13, Jesus told the parable of the homeowner who goes away and leaves his servant in charge. And that's a parallel to the time before Christ returns to the earth. Jesus urges his followers through that parable to watch because they don't know when the owner of the house will return. He says, if he, meaning Jesus, comes suddenly, which Jesus' earlier statements in that particular passage necessarily imply because he says only the Father knows the hour or the time, because of that, Jesus says, do not let him find you sleeping. 
Watch. Do not let him find you sleeping. Jesus' emphasis is on vigilance, watching, leading to diligence, doing what you ought to be doing based on the commandments that he gave. But Paul here focuses mainly on the diligence aspect. Be godly because the time is short. Paul says our salvation, it's almost here. Now, we often understand this word salvation uh, to mean the conversion from believer to unbeliever, but in this context, it means our coming into the fullness of the gracious gifts that God has given us on account of our belief in Christ. In other words, he's referring to that future time when we will come into eternal life. So Paul is saying here, wake up, because the time is short. You only have so much time. Wake up and stay awake for the rest of your time. Now Paul uses another metaphor, the metaphor of night versus day. And he uses the word night to refer to the present age and day to the resurrection. Just as seasons change, the days on the eternal timeline will change. Our time to do good, earn eternal reward, bring others to Christ, all of that is limited. That time is short. Paul writes his letters from a perspective that the day that marks the change of the seasons could come at any time. Because he believes the time is so short, we need to be on our best behavior now, so to speak. We act in the way that Paul lays out for us in verses 13 and 14 because our actions influence others. A famous man once said, I'm indebted to my father for living well. For living. I'm indebted to my teacher for living well. That man was Alexander the Great, who had as his teacher no less than Aristotle. And I don't hold Aristotle or Alexander the Great up as examples of Christian living, but simply to suggest that when other people see the way that we live, it has the power to shape our lives and influence them in extraordinary ways, ways that may even affect the course of human history. The works that characterize the lives of those that don't know Christ, and sometimes those that do know Christ, fall into this third Uh, metaphor, the deeds of darkness or sin, deeds that evidence our fallen nature, the fallen nature of this world. Paul again draws a contrast between the deeds of darkness when he uses this phrase, the armor of light. Now the Greek word here for armor is hopla. It literally means a tool or an implement for doing something, Uh, but it can also mean a weapon of warfare. It's like Paul is saying here, Put on your gear, your decent works, and your abstinence from bad works. Somehow our good deeds and our choices to refrain from sin are weapons. They're useful for building the body, for loving our brothers and sisters, and for witnessing the power of Christ to the power of Christ to change our lives, indeed to change the whole world. Because he has changed our lives, we are to get rid of the conduct that inflames the lust of the flesh. No drunkenness, drinking parties, or sexual immorality. If you're doing those things, stop now. Take off that conduct. Cast it off, Paul says, like soiled 
pants. So this is the metaphor of us putting on Christ. We wear our faith. We take off the things that we know to be evil, and we put on Christ to show the outside world that we've been changed, that we believe in Christ, that we believe the truth of the scripture. And in doing so, our attitudes and our actions testify to God's grace. But maybe you don't struggle with those sins that I just mentioned. Again, this has an internal aspect to it. If you engage in dissension or discord, stop that now, too. Even if you're jealous, that's a deed of darkness. Put it away now. Moreover, Paul's list is not exhaustive. He says in verse 14 that we should not think about, again, it goes back to thinking, how to gratify the lust of the flesh. We've been given the Holy Spirit so that we can get these non-exhaustive lists and figure out by the power of the Spirit what it is that inflames the lust of our flesh. So we have an obligation to figure that out as well. But instead of engaging in these sinful conduct, put on Christ. Clothe yourself with conduct that is becoming of Christ. What does this involve? This involves loving one another, as we discussed earlier. It involves regular involvement in the lives of others, both believers and unbelievers. And it involves thinking about how to make the most of each opportunity and assuming we ought to act when we know of others' needs. When we act and love because God first loved us, we dress well. We put on Christ. And in that way, you testify to your fellow believers and unbelievers of God's grace in your life. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for um, loving us first, loving us so well, giving us the example of your Son and of many faithful saints along the way, Paul and others even in this congregation. God, I pray that you would inspire us to love our neighbors as ourselves. Think about how to do that ahead of interactions that we'll have but then to just trust the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives to act in every situation. Give us boldness, Lord. We thank you so much for sending your Son to save us from our sins. And we place our faith in him. And we ask these things in his name. Amen.